I, uh, I limited Tracy's reading so I could expand my own. Look at John chapter 11. Let's get a setting here. John chapter 11 and verse 55. John chapter 11 and verse 55, where we read that now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. Now go to John 12, verse 9. John 12, verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, Many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Let's pray. Father, now teach us. May the words of my lips and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So who is this? Riding into the city. And why is he entering Jerusalem? The crowd thinks they know. They call him blessed, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, they're waving palm branches, and they're shouting, Hosanna, which means, save us. Hosanna, save us. Now, why is there such a large crowd? 
Why this enthusiastic welcome? Well, we're told, we just read. It's in part because some had witnessed Jesus' raising of Lazarus from the dead, and others had heard about what Jesus had done. Now, interestingly, we didn't read this scripture, but back in John 11, even the religious leaders had heard the reports, and they were infuriated by those reports, infuriated by what they heard and what they saw. They, they feared, as you read in verse 19, that if they don't stop Jesus, the whole world will end up following him. Now, if you were to look back in John 11, in verses 48 through 52, you would see that the religious leaders feared that if the people rally to Jesus as king, the Romans will descend upon this rebellious nation of Judea, destroy it, and remove these religious leaders from their positions of authority. Back in John 11, verse 50, the high priest, a man named Caiaphas, he argues, he argues with not the slightest hint of the importance of what he is saying. He argues that clearly it would be better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. Therefore, the Sanhedrin begin to plot Jesus' death. And now, the people, much like Caiaphas, they are welcoming Jesus without the slightest hint about what they are saying. You see them waving palm branches? You know what that's about? The palm branch is a symbol of the nation. It, for them to wave palm branches is somewhat similar to you and me waving an American flag. It is with patriotic zeal that they are welcoming their king and they're shouting, Hosanna, save us. Because what they want is that for this one whom they proclaim to be king, they want him to save them from their Roman oppressors. Now remember, they've come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. You know Passover, the celebration of the Lord's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. Well, if the Lord delivered them once, then surely this one who comes in the name of the Lord can do it again. I mean, surely if he's able to conquer death by raising Lazarus from the dead, he can defeat the Romans. Hosanna! Save us. And Jesus is coming to save us. He is the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord. He is the king. But why does he come? This is why he comes. 
this table, and all that it represents. He comes to die. And now take note of this. Unlike my Scottish forefather, William Wallace, with whom I am closely connected, Unlike William Wallace riding a war horse rallying Scotland to fight for its freedom, Jesus is riding a donkey. Why is he doing that? He's doing that to fulfill the prophecy of Zechariah written some 500 years earlier. Now, if you can, turn to Zechariah next to the last book of the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. Here you learn that Zechariah foretold that the king would come riding upon a donkey's colt. <laughs> Do you remember what we just read? The disciples look at Jesus riding upon a donkey's colt, and they don't have a clue. They have no idea why he's riding. He told them to go get a donkey. They got a donkey. He's riding the donkey. I don't know why. Scripture says they wouldn't understand any of this until after Jesus was raised from the dead till after he was glorified. So just imagine with me, here are the disciples gathered together after the resurrection, perhaps after the ascension, and somebody says, hey, check out this passage in Zechariah. And they're looking at Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 11, and they're reading with eyes wide open about how the righteous king will come humbly riding upon a donkey, bringing with him salvation. And then according to Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 10, he will come to proclaim peace to the nations and to establish a kingdom that will spread from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And then, according to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 11, he will come to set the prisoner free by the blood of the covenant. What blood? Whose blood? Isn't that a strange statement? Did you pay attention in Psalm 118 that all of a sudden we're talking about this king and then we're talking about the sacrifice being led up to the altar? What sacrifice? Whose blood? Well, here in John 12, if you look at verse 23... John 12 and verse 23. Listen to Jesus. As Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. To be glorified how? Listen to Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies 
it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Look at verse 31. Listen to Jesus. And now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. So here's Jesus, humbly riding upon the back of a donkey, yet coming in the name of the Lord, coming as king. And why has he come? He's come to die. Why? Because, as Paul writes in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then Paul tells us in Romans 8 that mankind's sin even negatively impacts the creation. That the creation because of man's sin, is in bondage. And this is why Jesus comes. And this is the world in which we live. A world in bondage. And this is who we are by birth. It's why we have a moment within our worship for the confession of sin, because we are sinners by birth who fall short of being the people God created us to be. This is why Jesus comes. He comes to die to pay the wages of sin. It's not for his sin that he'll die. He has no sin. He comes to take upon the sins of all who by grace through faith embrace him as their Savior, Lord, and King. And he comes to pay the wages our sins have earned. To deliver by grace through faith you and me and to deliver all creation from the ultimate curse and power of sin. Now just consider this with me for a moment. As Christians, we view reality from three perspectives. And sometimes we get those perspectives all confused. Three perspectives. We look back to creation to see what God called very good. And then we look forward. We look ahead to what will be when all tears will be wiped away. But we also see, I pray, with eyes wide open, that for now we live in a fallen world. The perfection of creation, the perfection of the world to come, now we live in a fallen world. Creation moans. 
Not only does creation moan, at times creation proves destructive. The season of the year, we know firsthand about storms that devastate our community. And as you sit here this morning, your bodies are aging. And some young and old are already impacted by various issues. And we know that if Jesus does not first return, our time on earth will end. And we know, we know experientially that in this world we are repeatedly heartbroken by the deaths of those we were not ready to lose. Repeatedly, over and over again. I've lost my father and my mother. I lost a brother when he was but six years old. Linda and I have lost a baby. This past week, I, I lost a friend who succumbed to cancer at the age of, of 70. I, I lost, a, many years ago, I lost a beloved cousin, who, same age, but he died in a car accident at the age of 40. I've even lost another cousin who was murdered at the age of 50. Now, you've got your own list. And you can add to that list. And sadly, it may be a long list. But it is the world in which we live. It's sad. The reason it's sad is because these things were not meant to be. We all feel that. We all feel that. In our heart of hearts, we know that we are not the people we were meant to be. In our heart of hearts, we know that things are not the way they were meant to be. I'm not the man I was meant to be. And this is not the world that was meant to be. This past week, you learned of tornadoes destroying homes and taking lives in Mississippi and Alabama and Arkansas. And then shockingly, it all came home to us. And we heard of a woman entering one of our denominational schools in Nashville, killing three 60-year-olds and perhaps even more heart-wrenching, three nine-year-olds. Linda's cousin is on staff in this school. Some of you also have various ties to the school or to the people of the school or to the people of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. 
What is going on here? What would the psalmist say? Have you read the psalms lately? What would the psalmist say? It's stunning what the psalmist would say. The psalmist would say, where are you, Lord? He says that repeatedly without hesitation. The psalmist would dare to say, where are you? What are you doing? Are you paying attention? There are no easy answers to these questions. Yes, we know that our God sovereignly rules over all things. And yes, we know that he works all things together for the fulfillment of his eternal and good purposes. But come on, come on. How can tornadoes and the slaughter of adults and children be what God wants? Have any of you had that thought? If you haven't, then you're a far better person than me. How could my brother get hit by a car, hit by a truck at the age of 60? How could that be part of God's plan? Was his guardian angel asleep on the job? Have you read the Psalms? How many times does the psalmist dare to say directly to God, wake up, pay attention, look at what's going here. Why do I tell you that? That's encouraging to me. The psalmist is a man just like us. The realities of life in this world eat at him as they eat at you and me. Theologians have tried to answer the problem of evil. Linda and I, in a devotional time together on Thursday or Wednesday or whatever day it was, we tried to answer the problem of evil. We batted back and forth, but she had one stubborn question after another. <laughs> Even John Calvin, somewhat better theologian than myself. Even John Calvin concluded that the answer to this question is clearly a secret so much excelling the insight of the human mind that I am not ashamed to confess 
ignorance. Well, neither am I. Like you, I walk by faith and not by sight. All the answers to my questions await a future day. You remember Job? Remember Job? God did not give Job an answer to Job's question. Job wanted to know, why am I suffering so horribly? And in effect, you remember God's answer? God's answer to Job was, I'm God. You're not. I'm God. You're not. The only place in Scripture where I know the question of evil is addressed is in Romans 9. And what is Paul's conclusion? You remember? Who are you, O man, to argue with God? Now, in my sinful humanity, Am I satisfied by those answers? At times I am. At times I'm not. Why? because I'm a sinful fallen man and cannot always understand all that is taking place around me. We're fallen creatures. We live in a fallen world, but by grace through faith in Jesus as Savior and Lord and King, we live with all of the pain We live knowing that the evil one will not win the ultimate battle, knowing that the stinger of death has been removed, knowing that when you or I or those we love die loving the Lord, though we find them absent from their bodies and, and weep because we miss them, so they're with the Lord. So I will tell you, and Linda can tell you, I've spent much of this week weeping with those who now weep. I know Pastor Scruggs. I have mourned over having to live in a fallen world. I have mourned over being a fallen creature, over the sinful things I have said or done that have hurt others. But I have not mourned as one who has no hope. My sure and certain hope, even with many questions yet unanswered, is in the one who, my sure and certain hope is in the one who rides into Jerusalem. He comes to ultimately defeat a far worse enemy than Rome. He comes to die in payment for my sin. He comes to rise again, assuring me of the gift of eternal life, 
an eternal life lived in his presence upon a new earth under a new heaven, free of death and mourning and tears and pain. And so I will live, weeping with those who weep, and yet also rejoicing with those who rejoice, who rest with sure and certain confidence in Jesus, our deliverer. We know somewhat what it was like before the fall. We, we know in part what it will be like one day when we enter the Lord's presence or he returns. We know that the ultimate and eternal victory he has won will be ours to share. But we also know that from for now, we live in a sin-scarred world. So even now as we weep, and weep we will, what did Jesus tell us? In this world, you will have tribulation. But even as we weep, so many questions unanswered. And please never feel alone that you've got all of these questions to which you can't find answers. I promise you my list may be longer than yours. Even with all of those questions unanswered, we walk by faith in the one who this day rides into Jerusalem, the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who comes to die to win the temporal and ultimate victory over sin and death and the grave. Many questions. Many unanswered questions. But by God's grace, my faith is in the one who today rides into Jerusalem because he comes to do battle with the evil one and to win the victory that overcomes the world. Let's pray. Father, teach us these truths as we approach this, your table, as we celebrate together the great sacrifice that you have made, that you who had no sin became sin for us, that we might be counted as the righteousness of God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.